Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Thank Godzilla. It's Friday. It's Friday, and that means it's Godzilla. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Slash Film, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. Uh, I don't have a cute nickname, but I am a big lover of Japanese monster movies from the 1960s, so I, I'm, I'm happy to be here. This this yeah. is wonderful. And uh, what we're reviewing today is Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got, uh, uh, we, once again, uh, we're doing a, a Godzilla movie that kind of sidesteps Godzilla. This is introducing a kaiju that will be important later in the Godzilla storyline. But the film itself that we are reviewing this week is not, strictly speaking, a Godzilla movie. It is a movie with a lot in it. It's got espionage, it's got supermodels, it's got uh, undersea kingdoms. Hey, it's the undersea kingdom <laughs> for you and for me, and it's it, fun. It has and a, it's got super submarines. I was going to say, it has a flying submarine. <laughs> with like a you... drill on it, like that one bad guy in the Puppet Master series who can like drill into you, like all well, badass-like. The... The submarine. You're thinking of Tunneler uh, from the Puppet Thank Master you. series, but uh, the submarine, which is the submarine of the title, after Gone, uh, looks a lot like Mogera, the big mole robot monster from uh, the Mysterians. I guess so, it does uh, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. That. that that kind of drill and the same sort of yeah cone shapes. It it looks like Mogera's head to me. Well, uh, this movie is called Atragon. It came out in 1963. Uh, it is, uh, as many of the films that we've reviewed so far, and quite a few that we'll review in the future, uh, ha will be uh, directed by Ishiro Honda. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is yet another, this is a bit more in the vein of the Mysterians, a rousing old-fashioned adventure-type serial full of uh, interesting locales and mysterious civilizations that want to conquer the Earth. And, oh, how? what sort of super science can we use to defend the Earth? Should we use the bomb? No, 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 no. We always mention that, and we never do that. We need a super submarine. If only we had one. I know of a super submarine. Yes. That's the movie. <laughs> the, the one that's left over from... That was built underground by a missing faction of soldiers who still think World War II is going on. This one's nuts. There's uh, a lot of movie in this movie. Yeah, and and like all of these movies, it's incredibly short. Uh, which oh, thank goodness. These mm. Godzilla movies, these monster movies, these Tokusatsu films, like ninety five minutes tops. They know that they don't need a lot of time. They can just do all of this stuff. Atragon packs more punch into 94 minutes than most two-hour-plus Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Uh, there's a lot that maybe could have been in the movie. Maybe some, uh, some, some more character work, perhaps. Perhaps a bit more of an exploration of the really big ideas and mythology that they're kind of bringing up. But they don't actually care about that. They want to just chug along. And keep you absolutely on the tip of your toes, on the edge of your seat, uh, just sort of breathless, moving forward. I mean, the opening of this movie, we've got, like, uh, uh, ships sinking at sea. We've got uh, people being kidnapped in, the, uh, in, the, in their car. Uh, we've got uh, 
photographers out in the middle of the night taking sexy photographs and they happen to accidentally run into this runaway car that like flies into the water and it kind of like starts like doing all sorts of mysterious stuff and now that guy's like oh man i'm so glad we got those photos i should really embark on this plot wait a minute that girl over there is incredibly attractive i'm gonna stalk her and maybe she'll be important by accident turns out she is okay so she is the daughter of a a, a ge- it's like II. a general or something yeah yeah a, a world war ii i think it's an admiral a oh, captain. Right, sorry, he's he's a he's yeah. a naval admiral yeah yeah he was yeah he's a naval captain and um at the end of world war ii he died and it was very very tragic and he left his daughter to be raised by a respected associate of his she is now uh, a young woman she hasn't seen her father in 20 years because she thinks he's dead. Turns out, maybe not so much. And he might have been secretly, like, pulling, like, a Colonel Kurtz out in the middle of, like, a tropical isle somewhere and, like, building up an army and doing a whole bunch of things, either not realizing that World War II is over or not caring and uh, getting ready to basically conquer the world for Japan, even though everyone in Japan's like, no, 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 we don't really do that. That's, that's not a thing. Please stop. We just want you to fight the, the undersea kingdom, which is also a thing now. The undersea, the undersea kingdom of Mu, M U, hmm. uh, and one of my favorite moments is when they get a package from Mu, from the kingdom of Mu, and they know it's from Mu because it says Mu on it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just this little box. If you're unfamiliar with Mu, this was actually not made up for the movie. In fact, the movie yeah, is yeah. based on uh, some other stories, but the concept of a lost undersea continent or lost continent called Mu dates back to uh, a uh, uh, a writer named James Churchward who claimed that a continent called Mu was real. It actually existed. It was somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. He had uh, uh, discovered this uh, because uh, he, he was one of only like three people who could read this ancient language. Uh, and uh, it revealed the existence of this secret civilization, which like worshipped the Egyptian god of Ra. So in the movie Atragon, the Undersea Kingdom has a lot of Egyptian uh, sort of costuming and overall yeah. aesthetic. Um, this is, of course, uh, in case you hadn't noticed, um, not true. That's not a thing. <laughs> That's actually real. Well, but it's one says, of those says things. You. Well, it says says science says well, like we, okay, we've so actually there's... like we've actually got like satellites and we can look into the, yeah, the ocean look, and see where the islands uh, are and stuff and whole, whole continents can't like be swallowed by the sea mm-hmm. um or so, if they did uh, they probably wouldn't be in good working order right because um, these aren't people who can breathe underwater it's it should be noted uh, no, these are people, they, they live in, like, essentially a, a countryside, or a continent-sized grotto. It's just a bunch of caves. Mm-hmm. Um, how they get sun, they must all have scurvy, because, you know, they, I can't imagine them getting vitamin C or any kind of sunlight down there. Well, but, I mean, they uh, must yeah, be Mu, uh, vitamin C in it. From what I understand about Mu, and this is just my old uh, knowledge kicking in from when I was reading all of the, uh, you know, Time Life UFO books and those sorts of sources... Uh, there was Atlantis and there was Mu. Atlantis yeah. uh, was uh, sunk under the Atlantic and Mu sunk under the Pacific. Mu mm-hmm. uh, was short for Lemuria, Lemuria, and it's also where we get the word lemur from. No. 
Yeah. Yeah. I had not heard that part. Because lemurs, the animals, are from Lemuria. I, oh. I, I don't know. I don't know the exact connection, but I, that's that's sort of the the etymology of the I, word lemur. I'm throwing it out here now. I did not know that, and now I'm mad that we don't have a giant lemur kaiju in this movie. <gasps> oh, how cool that would have been that great. Have been? Yeah. Sadly, it's no. Sadly, it's just a sea serpent in this movie. It's not a, a, a lemur. But yeah, a ninety foot lemur would have been awesome. Yeah. No. Instead, uh, Moo is protected by a giant sea serpent uh, named Manda. Uh, and Manda, Manda isn't in the movie very much, but I will say this. I think one of my critiques of the Mysterians, a movie I very much enjoyed, uh, was they had a kaiju, but they threw it in right at the beginning. And it felt like something maybe you save for the last act. Something to something to, as a treat. Rather than say, this is going to be a kaiju movie, and then the kaiju is defeated, and then there's no more kaijus for the rest of the movie. Manda is talked up a lot. They say, well, don't we worship Manda. Don't let us sick Manda on you. And then Manda is only unleashed at the end of the movie. Yeah. So it actually so feels they, like we're, we built up to Manda. Manda was yeah, the hairy yeah. lime of the film. And then when we finally see Manda, it's like, oh, Manda's here. That's cool. I like Manda. Yeah. Um, it was a little upsetting in the Mysterians because they, like, Mogera showed up right at the beginning went on the the rampage and then was taken out by the military and you would think that would be sort of like bookends like Mogera is going to come back at the end but like it's going to be super Mogera like an even or, stronger one for the or finale or multiple Mogeras if we had yeah, the budget like, you know? like, yeah we cool got too. 50 of them and we're going to send them all all across the world uh no the the final battle in the Mysterians is we got some tanks and we're going to sneak up this super laser and sneak into the, the alien compound, which is fine. I'm okay with there being, you know, a, a variety of mm. climaxes, types of action to go into the ends of these movies. Right. But, yeah, it, it was like... Mogera is more I, I want, I want more. Yeah. I want more monster than, you know, I want more Mogera in that movie. Yeah, so, that, like you said, Harry Lime, you're constantly talking about Manda. Yes, Manda's going to show up and wreak havoc by the end. And yeah, Manda shows up literally 10 minutes from the end. Yeah, And, and Manda is, I will say this, I like Manda as a monster. It's not uh, a, a stereotypical guy in a suit. It's not like a biped. It's actually a very long uh, dragon, much more in the sort of Chinese dragon uh, a realm. I believe, I could be wrong, I believe this came out in the year of the dragon, and that's one of the reasons why that was decided upon. I read that somewhere. Um, but um, I always liked that version of a sea serpent. Just a really long, you know, it'll coil itself around your ship and squeeze you until you explode kind of kind of sea serpent. All of that stuff's very, very cool. Uh, Manda is dispatched a little too easily for my taste, but whatever, you saved him for the last 10 minutes. We, we have to get rid of him somehow. So, a bit of a bummer there. Um... Okay, so, before we get to Manda, we have this incredibly long, incredibly complicated narrative that really does spiral out into a million directions. But I think the focal point is uh, the the missing captain who faked his own death. Uh, it's it's the, uh, you, you called it the Colonel Kurtz thing. Yeah, the, yeah. the well, idea Colonel of... Kurtz was the good guy. What? Well, I see a parallel between that and uh, the 1954 Godzilla. These are both mm. oh, yeah. echoes echoes of the war, that the war is still going on, that there are still people hurting from the damage. It's, I mean, this movie was made in the early 60s. It's been two, you know, nearly two decades, and 
yeah, the, we're we're still seeing sort of the effects of it. And I think Ishiro Honda is trying to say that these monsters that we're seeing, this whole spate of monster movies, really is a commentary on the way the war kind of thrust Japan onto the world stage in a certain way. Mm-hmm. In one way, as you know, the victim of a nuclear strike, which it is. But in another way, uh, a newly recognized superpower. Mm. Uh, and so I feel like the, the monsters are a reflection of both of those things. They're destructive and tragic, and yet also this symbol for uh, a renewed might in the world. And that's sort of, the, each monster is almost like its own nation. We yeah. talked about that a little bit when we talked about King Kong versus Godzilla, because King Kong is an American monster. Mm-hmm. Well, from Skull Island, but the movie comes from America. Yeah. Uh, and so you could see King Kong versus Godzilla as... Uh, Japanese military might versus American military might. And indeed, in both uh, Atragon and the Mysterians, which again, not strictly speaking as much of a kaiju movie as the others, but they're both Japan dealing with encroaching uh, colonialism. People approaching Japan as, oh, they're vulnerable, let's let's take them now. Uh, And after World War II, after, you know, the Imperial uh, 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 Navy was disbanded and had to get rebuilt again in the 1950s. And the patriotism of World War II uh, seems to be in question in a lot of Ishiro Honda's uh, monster and sci-fi films. But what I think is interesting is that... Well, what what I appreciate... Hold hold on a second. Let me me expand on that for a second. Sure. In none of these movies, in any of these kaiju movies, is World War II ever seen as, like, having produced anything positive, for one. Yeah. It was just a time of, of destruction. It wasn't about conquest. And uh, it's it's also... Um, it's, it's not something to be proud of. It's not something to aspire to. It's something that, that the characters in these movies are, are studiously trying to avoid. Yeah. It, in a way, these movies about monster destruction are symbols for pacifism. They are, and I think this is the thing I think is interesting about Ashira Honda's approach, because we've seen, uh, and again, most of the movies we've covered so far have been Ashira Honda, so I'm focusing on him as a storyteller. Yeah, um, yeah. We've seen Ashira Honda deal with various uh, uh, political and uh, and even themes in like entertainment, but... Um, a lot of his movies are big giant monster movies or sci-fi adventure movies that approach and tackle uh, uh, big ideas. And you're right, none of them seem particularly high on World War II. Gojira is very sobering uh, as a as a discussion of World War II. Uh, however, while it is critical of that, it also seems to understand that there may be a new form of patriotism. That has emerged. In Atragon, uh, the younger characters are, are chastised for saying, you don't understand patriotism the way uh, the World War II generation did. Uh, but at the same time, these are characters in all these movies who uh, uh, rise up, solve problems, become important on the world stage, uh, save Japan from giant monsters. Uh, and yet, even though they are protecting uh, uh, Japan from harm, there is also a need to use Japanese uh, military force, political force, science uh, as a means of self-defense and uh, and as a means of attack. So even though we have a character here, and this character is 
literally out of touch. He's been out of commission for 20 years, and when they do find him in the middle of the movie, it takes a while to, to track him down. They gotta get on an airplane, they gotta get in a boat, they gotta go to an island, they gotta travel through the island. It's a whole whole epic trek. He's surprised at the state of world affairs. He has not been keeping tabs on it. All he has been doing is building the world's greatest weapon of mass destruction. A giant super flying submarine with a drill on it. So you know that like somewhere, like the five-year-old version of him, he's just like, just put a drill on it, it'll be cool. <laughs> but like, regardless... Uh, let's paint it red, and we yeah. get to sit in a little space egg. Like, he, he's, clearly some fun was had. Like, But yeah, regardless, yeah. the idea is we're building this thing not just to protect Japan from monsters or the lost continent of Boo, but as a conquering device. And even though that character is clearly uh, wrong to keep that uh, uh, destructive form of patriotism alive after this long after World War II, without that character and the weapon that they created, the Japan and probably the whole, and the whole world actually, we hear like Venice has been destroyed and the whole world would be doomed. So even though we're critical of the events of World War II and, and various uh, forms of uh, national identity in World War II, we're not that critical. And ultimately, there's a more complicated... At best, I think there's a more complicated conversation. And at worst, there might be a little bit of hypocrisy. I don't know. Uh, well, the, the hypocrisy comes with... Um, like, like when we talk about uh, a, a film like... Um, this might be a strange comparison, but a film like Fight Club or um, yeah. uh, A Clockwork Orange, these are movies about sort of villainous characters with bad ideas, mm. but their respective movies treat them like they're really cool and funny. Yeah. So they become very... The filmmakers make those bad characters seem very magnetic. All I think sudden, that can be All of a very, sudden, they yeah. exist mostly on the dorm rooms of colleges where people yeah, who because, like, I want to be reminded of Alex the Large constantly. You know he's a monster, right? Yeah, but he's cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. He, he's a monster, but he's cool, and a lot of people get a little bit hung up on the cool. And that's the issue, too, with these monster movies. These are films that are trying to interrogate World War II and trying to interrogate wartime violence and sort of the mark that World War II is still left on people. Um, the the, char the Admiral character reminded me of uh, uh, Toshiro Mifune's character from a, a Kurosawa's film, I Live in Fear. Oh, I'm not sure okay. if you saw that one. I haven't seen that uh, one, actually. I do know that the, uh, uh, they wanted... <laughs> Uh, Toshiro Mifune to play that character. Uh, oh, the the uh, Kusumi is the the name of the character. Let me look at the actor's name. Uh, um, uh, Ken Uehara is the name of the actor. Yeah. Um, um, is it Kusumi? I thought it was something else. Hold on. Rear Admiral Kusumi. Yeah, is the is the character okay. I was thinking of. Okay. Um, um, but he, he was, was a character. Think, I think who I was, was thinking of Hichiro uh, Jinguji. He's the guy who's actually uh, who builds the submarine. Oh, okay. So yeah, then he, maybe I was getting a little much. That's Yoko Fujiyama. Yeah. Um, uh, they they wanted um, no Yoko Fujiyama. Uh, uh, oh wait, he's played, he's the, the, yeah. You're right. Um, Kusumi, sorry, was the character who knew. Um, yes. Uh, 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 Kusumi Jinguji, raised Jinguji, the missing daughter. Yeah. No. And Jinguji's uh, uh, daughter is is uh, Yoko, uh, yeah. uh, played by Yoko Fujiyama. Uh, Jun yeah. Tazaki played uh, Captain Jinguji. I believe the story goes that they wanted Toshiro Mifune to play 
uh, you know, the mysterious captain, it gets built up so much, and all of a sudden, oh my god, it'd be Toshiro Mifune. How fucking cool would that be? And Toshiro Mifune, A, was busy uh, preparing to do Redbeard for uh, Akira Kurosawa at the time, uh, and B, apparently just didn't do these movies. I, I would be surprised if he didn't get multiple offers over the years, and he doesn't oh, I'm, really I'm sure. have, he, he, like, yeah, guidance he's... on his resume to speak of. Yeah, look, you look over... Toshiro Mifune was like he, he was a serious actor. He did not want to be seen in these sort of tokusatsu films. Um, but, I think he, but what he I was, turned down Star Wars, didn't he? I, I think everybody was offered Star Wars, but yeah, that, they I, really I wanted him to play Obi Wan Kenobi, though. How cool would that have been if it was that would Toshiro awesome. Mifune? Like, oh a, a, like, a, like Alec Guinness is oh, fun be, in that movie because he clearly doesn't want to be there. Like he's taking the role seriously. <laughs> But it's like I don't. I don't want to do science fiction. Uh, but yeah, that would have been cool if it was would Toshiro have been Mifune. A very different character. Would have been a very well, different point, character. I would have loved point it. being, Toshiro Mifune played a, yeah. a, without any makeup. Played a seventy-five-year-old man in the film *I Live in Fear*, and it was about uh, a family sort of struggling to recover after World War II. He lives in fear of another bomb dropping, and he uh, acts accordingly. He starts sort of taking care of his affairs and uh, putting his family in this really awkward position. We're all going to die really soon. No, no, we're, we're okay now. We're going to try to get on with our lives. Uh, so that's trying to interrogate wartime fear. Ishiro Honda, who knew Kurosawa, by the way, they work together a lot. Sure. Um, this is his version of that kind of interrogation. We have this Heart of Darkness story where we have this... Uh, Character who lives in fear, who's constantly living in a cave, uh, and that's my interrogation. Uh, the war has sort of still left a mark on people's minds. The yeah. military people were never able to let go of the military. and uh, But the problem with having that kind of interrogation in a film like Atragon is that Atragon is a hoot. It's really yeah. light and fun. It's got monsters and attacks and undersea kingdoms. It moves along. It's really kind of brisk and lightweight, so it's... Also, I wouldn't say it's hip, hypocrisy, but it is... Uh, it's a little uh, self-contradictory at times, I think. Yeah, and it's, and it, I, it's trying it, to make this really heady message seem really kind of fun as well. But I feel like if you're going to yeah. have that, it, it's okay to have sort of a heady message in a light adventure film. Look at any of the big light blockbusters we see coming out of America. They're, they're usually spectacles. They're usually just a lot of action and, and special effects. But... Mm-hmm. The better ones skillfully fold in something a little bit more thoughtful in between the action. Well, the movie I actually think about when I think about the way that Atragon uh, takes a character who, again, is presented as not a villain because there's definitely villains in the film and he's not it. But he's a much more sort of anti-hero kind of character because he's doing the right thing for the very wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing I was actually thinking of when it just comes down to like, oh, well, how do we uh, stop Mu from destroying the planet? Well, that clearly that has to be stopped. We don't want to encourage that. That's that's not good. Um, well, we have to use the thing that in a perfect world probably shouldn't have been made. And that's when I started thinking about uh, The Dark Knight. Which ends oh. with Batman using technology that, frankly, he should not have made. Deeply unheroic of him to make this technology that basically, like, snuck into everyone's phones and used them to, like, locate people completely outside of any sort of constitutional edict. Um, but the movie argues that maybe it was important to do it this one time, but also it wasn't... 
and they're kind of trying to have the cake and eat it too. But yeah, I appreciate we, we, that they we, we had a conversation about the necessity of cake at the very least. Yeah, like 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 we we hate violence, but also we violence. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, I think the big contradiction here is, um, so, uh, go- golly, I'm gonna, about to get pretentious. It's actually about the very function of cinema itself. Uh, Real-life violence is something very tragic. It's something to be avoided. It's something that hurts and rips people apart. It's not something to be celebrated in real life. But movie violence... Mm is just the opposite of that. Movie violence can actually be very exhilarating, can be very cathartic, because it takes place in a fantasy world where we're allowed to sort of have those violent fantasies. That's why there are so many action movies in the world. That's why there are so many movies about revenge. That kind of action doesn't pl- take place in the real world. Well, in real How world, often you is wouldn't there... want conflicts to be resolved with that big a body count. In real life, you'd yeah. want to resolve through diplomacy, but real life well, is, also, also, in... is also messy and unsatisfying, and sometimes it mm. would be nice to simply deal with issues directly and that movies can provide an outlet for that. Yeah. It's like I, 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 the world is too complicated. I want something to have a simple solution and I want that solution to have the cathartic feeling of hitting a guy in the face. (laughs) Uh, so wouldn't it be great if there were a story where, uh, everything climaxes with me hitting a guy in the face and everything is solved. So, uh, it can, a movie can condemn violence. Mm. As it appears in the real world, wartime violence, they're referring to a real, you know, real history and still have fun movie violence in it. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of people who like really violent movies. I like really violent movies. I love a, a good violent horror movie where people get their faces torn off. If I were next to somebody when they got their face torn off, I'd probably be traumatized for life. Yeah. That's not something I actually want to witness, but it's something I want to witness in movies. Well, you want, uh, you I want, want to have it in this sort want, of fantasy capacity. You want to capacity. know that it's fake. Yeah, yeah. You want that distance. You want to be able to say, this is being performed mm. for me, for my edification. But I also want to know that there's a little blurb at the end of the movie saying, we really didn't cut off no, anyone's faces. No. Here's the makeup team. Yeah, well, and, and even even if it looks super realistic and it's supposed to be really dour and frightening and horrifying, uh, there's still that further buffer of that being filmed. It is now, once you film it, it becomes a medium. It becomes art and it becomes something different. Even a real act of violence on film is different from witnessing it in person. Uh, This is all a highfalutin way of saying that Atragon, uh, something about violence. Um, (laughs) Well, again, any time you try to put real-world context into a fantasy narrative, it it begs the question, what are you saying about that real-world context? Are you saying something pointed or meaningful? Are you simply bringing it up to make it look like you're you're smart? Or are you actually doing something significant with that material? And we've seen a lot of movies try to do it both ways. And I think Atragon sits a little in the middle. I appreciate that. They're trying to do this very old-fashioned, very colonialist story, actually, in a lot of ways, about how, you know, we're going to travel to this mysterious island or this mysterious locale underwater, and there's the whole culture there, and it's not our culture, and that's bad. Just top to bottom, no one good in that entire uh, world, except for, like, maybe one agent who might kind of be on our side, but maybe he's not... And, yeah, there's there's something really reductive about that. And they want to be able to have fun with that kind of almost childish 
uh, uh, approach to good and evil yeah. while still acknowledging that there are people in the audience who have a brain in their head and probably want to address why all after everything that happened in World War II, we built a giant super submarine. <laughs> like, <laughs> I that should probably come up at some point. And I think this does a better job than some movies, uh, a lot of American movies, about trying to have their cake and eat it too. And I appreciate that. Uh, uh, one thing I, that was actually a real bummer uh, watching hmm. this movie, uh, and it's it's timing, um, but uh, very recently, as of this recording, uh, there was a submarine tragedy uh, of a bunch of people who uh, uh, tried to go down in a private submarine to view the Titanic uh, underwater, and there was a long search, and it turns out that the bus, uh, the, uh, the sub had... Uh, Wow, how did I just flip that word? But it turns uh, out you know what sub- it, it it was yeah. so badly made it may as well have just been a bus. Um, yeah, it, was, you, you, it looked really, 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 really. It, it shoddy, was it was it, it was a shoddy vehicle that they. Uh, yeah. Um. So, uh, so s- some people uh, sank in the Titanic in 1912, and wouldn't you know it, it's still claiming victims. Uh, I know, uh, but the thing <laughs> that was that was just kind of really on the nose is there's a scene in this movie where a submarine also implodes. And I was watching this, and if you, I know some people are listening to this podcast and watching the movies along with us. Uh, we're sorry about just how sobering that moment may have been, you know. Mm. Which is like, oh, that, they the movie makers thought that might be kind of fun, but mm. watching it in the immediate context of what we're you know we're thinking about and human lives lost, it's uh, that particular image wasn't uh, wasn't entertaining. It was just no. kind of a bummer, was... yeah. Well, I, and I was thinking of uh, um, the abyss because the the abyss yeah. is also about deep sea diving. It's all about wa- water pressure is a big part of that movie. Uh, they have to send Ed Harris down into the uh, the inky depths of I think they're in the Atlantic, and uh, mm. uh, they have to fill his lungs and body with fluid so oh, like yeah. his lungs aren't crushed by the pressure. Uh, so they they invent this sort of like breathable fluid and fill his suit with it. It's pretty cool actually. Um, but yeah, that that's what's going on in Atragon. This, I think it's an American sub, isn't it? Because the the characters on the sub are all speaking English. I believe it's the American and, uh, sub that gets imploded. Yeah. yeah, and and yeah, it's trying to chase the uh, the the Lemurians of the Moo sub, and you know it can deal with the pressure, and the American sub can't, and it starts to pull up, and it, it ends up just crushing underneath the the water pressure. Yeah, um, the uh, people get uh, people get kidnapped uh, by the the continent of Moo. Uh, they are, they're, we're told they're like put to work, but what I love about the continent of Mo, it's Bates two rooms. There's like an mm-hmm. office where this one guy, I thought it was the King, but it turns out there's an Empress of Mu, but this guy looks to be in charge for most of the movie. And I really appreciated when one of like the spies that we had seen, uh, above ground, uh, comes in and the guy's just like me after I've been editing podcasts for like two hours at the middle of the night I just kind of fall asleep in my chair and the guy's mm-hmm. like falling asleep in his chair and the guy's like uh sir submarine stuff oh what oh oh you're here uh what's 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 going on earth bad what happened I thought that was <laughs> kind of funny uh but there's also the big uh musical number room where they have giant crowds of various uh, it's, it's, uh musical like numbers the, uh... and chanting and uh, it's yeah, the it's, gi- it's, it's the 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 gym where where yeah. they have uh, or the the auditorium where it's they the have the palace like, hotel school- ballroom. Uh, oh, the, the I was going to say they have like yeah. they have like school assemblies in there. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, so those are the two big, you know, Moo rooms that we get to see. We learn that Moo is actually the reason why Moo is attacking isn't because they were bored or that they forgot the surface world existed until recently. Uh, their civilization is literally crumbling. There are earthquakes yeah. and walls are falling apart. They're not going to live for much longer. And so rather than come up and politely say, uh, hi, uh, can, 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 can we come hang out? Like, what, do, what are we going to do? Um, which, to be fair, after seeing the Mysterians, you know, and how, and granted those guys turned out to be evil, but the initial reaction to asking politely didn't go very well. So maybe... Hmm. Maybe their their plan was warranted, but uh, they assumed that we just have to conquer the surface world, and so here we are, a conquering. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, the majority of the movie is is like the first third is trying to investigate Moo, and there's a whole bunch of mysterious characters. We learned that for whatever reason, Mu, people from Moo run really hot on the surface world, and uh, so like they're constantly shivering in the cold or when they touch someone with their hands, they're like, yeah, they choked me and their hands were burning, which that was kind of a neat idea. They didn't really do a lot with it, but it was a neat idea. Uh Um, But then the middle chunk is we're on this island. Dude is confronted with his daughter. She doesn't recognize him anymore. She's deeply ashamed of him. He doesn't get that at all. Huge generational divide. Uh, And... The, the moves actually sabotage uh, the submarine. There's a big explosion. Uh, people get kidnapped. And now it's up to them. We have to fix the sub and then get it airborne, which we didn't know it could do. <laughs> so it can which fly cool. around and like... it's. I mean, it's, it's cool. It I, is cool. I, I, and the shots of it... Okay. And this goes back to me watching monster movies on UHF TV. TV when I was a kid, yeah. uh, and also a big part of that was also seeing uh, the the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson shows like Thunderbirds, mm-hmm. and there's something just so beautiful about those little miniatures, mm-hmm. these little mini vehicles, this weird vehicle fetish where it's a, a cool giant vehicle, but at the same time you know it's a toy, yeah. uh, so it's it's like appealing to two parts of your brain at the same time. The shots of the Atragon, like, floating around just brought me so much pleasure. It's it's a cool-looking ship. I will say that right now. And a part of me was, like, I remembered... I think I'm remembering something differently. Because I remember when we reviewed Rodan, I realized that I had had a toy of Rodan. Like, a really big one from the 1970s that I grew up with. Yeah, yeah. You and when said I it was, saw like, the sh- kind, of, yeah. kind of valuable now. When I saw the ship design, I was like... Did I have one of those too? And I had a toy that was very similar to that, but the research I've been able to do hasn't pulled up the toy in question. So I think I just had some other kind of long vehicle with a drill at the front of it toy. Uh, and I don't know what it was. <laughs> if anyone has any idea, I think the drill actually, like if you pressed the drill, the drill would like push into the vehicle as though it was drilling deeper, deeper inwards. So, like, it was, like, you know, kind of retractable, like a fake knife kind of thing. Uh, but I cannot You're describing for the life it. of me. Yeah. That sounds so that familiar. Right? Like and it was, like, it was, like, plasticky silver, the, the drill. Um, and for the life of me, I can't remember the hell it was. Um, I don't think it was Transformer. It wasn't, it wasn't the Nautilus, it was, was it? A Nautilus? The, the the Nautilus from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Well, I'm not familiar with the concept, but hold on. The Nautilus. Oh, look up, look up a picture of that thing. The Nautilus toy. 
Uh, hold on. But specifically from the the Disney yeah. film. Oh, maybe. Hold on. Um, no. No, that's not it. That's a different thing. It's cool. Oh, it's. But it's not. That's definitely not what I had. No, no I literally, like it literally had like a bright game. silver drill on the front, and it wasn't very sharp. It was very rounded at the edge. Uh, but then you could like press on the drill on the front. Like if you push the drill like into a wall or something like that, the drill would like recede into the vehicle as though it was drilling yeah. deeper and deeper, but it wasn't actually. And then it just sort of popped back up when you move the, the chip. No idea. If anyone knows what the hell I'm talking about, uh, it was, yeah, this would have been that... a toy that would have been available in like the early to mid eighties, possibly from the seventies or earlier. Uh, I was, I, my, my sibling was uh, significantly older than me. So I inherited a lot of like toys from the seventies. Uh, let me know if you have any idea what the hell I'm thinking of, because I, yeah, I'm I mean, totally breaking it. It's been driving me nuts. I mean, I, I understand why you might think it's it's the Atragon, because that... Yeah. It looks like it. You, you, if you look up a picture of the Atragon, that's what it looks like. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's driving me up the wall. I I, I can't sleep. I can't eat. Food doesn't taste good anymore. <laughs> it's just I, I need to fig- figure out this, this drill need to figure out this drill it's driving me crazy um but yeah the uh, atragon gets to like drill deep into the city of moo and they get to rescue people uh theoretically when Atra- when the uh, atragon like drilled into the city the city should have flooded which i think oh. they kind of forgot to do or maybe it was too expensive and they they didn't get around to it but that it, should have happened I'm going to let it go, but it's a little detail. Yeah. I'm like, isn't that kind of the point of water? Okay. Uh, I, I know that I know they didn't have the special effects for this sort of thing, but wouldn't it have been keen if if the Moo people yeah. were were underwater creatures? Like, That'd have been neat, like, right? Like, like, like Namor from Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Yeah. Um, another like have... movie about an undersea kingdom that comes to attack. Yeah, no, no I get it. And there, I was thinking of that, too, and how there there are definitely some, like, sort of superficial similarities in the way that the uh, civilization sort of looks and the way that they interact with the surface world. Um, I really like the way that uh, Wakanda Forever treats, like, an undersea kingdom. I think it looks really cool. Uh, I know it kind of got... People kind of got distracted because, like, one month later, Avatar 2 came out, and that was, like, the big underwater movie. Uh, that yeah. made infinitely more money, but I really appreciate the level of personality and care and visual distinctiveness, not just bright and pretty looking, but like seriously dramatic uh, and intense uh, that Ryan Coogler brought uh, to Wakanda Forever. So I, I thought oh, that was yeah, a really yeah. good look. Um, here, this is much more of a, of a you know, it, 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 with a little less money, this would have been like a Flash Gordon serial kind of right. Uh And they had some money, and it looks kind of neat. And there's definitely some attention to detail. I like how... Um, uh, I appreciate that the Moo have like cool devices and like cool bombs that look like really neat cylinders and stuff. And so when they have to kidnap the Empress, they're like... Sneaking around with, like, this cool futuristic grenade or whatever. Um, they have to, like, put on... The, I, I love their um, uh, uh, underwater suits that the that the Moo have. Because they look kind of silvery. They look like monsters. 
Like, if you had just said, and there's also these monsters in the movie, and they look like that, I would have said, fine. But it turns out that's just what the people in suits look like. Uh, which mm. I feel like more could have been done with that, but it's a neat approach, and I miss the days when anything even remotely futuristic was bright silver. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, think yeah. I think Austin Powers ruined that for forever. When it was just well, like it, we're doing just, something futuristic, everyone put on your silver jumpsuits. I, I think it just became you know it fell out of fashion, so it became easy to uh, uh, parody after a while. Well, I think I think the thing that really helped kill it was um, was Star Wars actually, because before Star Wars. Sci-fi stuff was considered, you know, it's going to be futuristic. Therefore, it must be pristine, be clean, better yeah, taken clean, care of, brand clean new. and shiny. Yeah. The technology would be brand new. And Star Wars was like, not nah, it'd be lived in and junky after five minutes. And yeah, yeah. fair enough. And that was a great aesthetic. And, you know, a lot of people have been trying to copy that ever since. Uh, Star Wars eventually forgot all about that in the prequel trilogy, uh, which I think yeah. was supposed to be a comment about, like, how highfalutin... Uh, the pre-Empire um, uh, Republic was, but ultimately it felt like to me like it was in a different universe altogether. I didn't, I actually didn't like the aesthetic. I thought it was too different. Like I didn't see how it could change that dramatically. Uh, yeah, but yeah. then they then they went back to it for the sequel trilogy. So who the hell knows? Um, I uh, I um, find it a little curious because that uh, Han Solo's ch- flying saucer, um, mm-hmm. the Millennium Falcon. Wedding. The Millennium Falcon. <laughs> Sorry, a little brain fart there. Yeah. Um, that thing, like, it starts out, it's in Star Wars, and it's already called, like, an old hunk of junk at that yeah. point. And then it shows up in, like, the sequel films, like, 30 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Like, how It's gonna how be like old a Model is... T at that point. I was gonna know? say, yeah. that, that, that ship is, like, a century old by the time we see yeah. it. It's like... That's not a badass ship anymore. I feel like the in the first movie, because we find out that, like, the reason why it has that gap in the front was because that was actually an important part of the ship that got lost in the movie Solo. And it's been, like, just been ripped to shreds for forever. And it's just basically, mm-hmm. like, it used to be a really nice ride and it's kind of gone to seed, but it still runs good. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, in in... Star Wars, it was like, yeah, that's like a 1956 Cadillac that has that desperately needs body work, but the engine purrs. And it, by the time we get to the new the the sequel trilogy, that's a 1926 Porter. Like that is just an, <laughs> it's it's a classic, but it should be in a uh, museum. It probably should. It's probably not even road safe anymore. Um, I would love, I would love to see a Fast and Furious movie where they only have access to 100-year-old cars. That'd be neat, right? Cars that are manufactured in 1923. Mm -hmm. Um, And you you can look those up. There's a prequel film called The Slow and the Steady. (laughs) No, no. Where, like, the the maximum maximum speed is, like, 40, 40 miles an hour, you know? No, they, they they soup these things up so they have like NOS engines, but they you know it's like some old Renault or whatever they got. Oh no, no, back I'm thinking about like making a movie set in the twenties, and it's all about like oh. Vin Diesel's <laughs> granddad, you know, and like they just really play into it. <laughs> the fast and the gregarious, come fellas. There you go. Um, anyway, I, I watched the hell out of that movie. Anyway, they fight when they finally release Manda. We need to get back to Manda because Manda's why we're here. Manda will eventually show up and destroy yeah. all monsters and some other Godzilla media. When they finally release Manda, and it is in the last ten minutes, it's a little disappointing. 
Uh, Manda, I love Manda. I love how Manda moves. Again, it's not really a guy in a suit. It's more of like a puppety kind of kind of creature. No. Um, they end up. It turns out that even though this uh, uh, captain who faked his own death had planned to go back to war uh, and basically conquer the world for Japan, more or less, uh, even though he was going to do all of that, he was going to use freeze weapons instead of bullets, which is very considerate of him. Because that's much <laughs> more like PG safe kids matinee yeah, type yeah. violence, uh, and so and I'm and I'm, I'm, o- I'm okay with that because and that's is where we cross the line with movie violence. If it yeah. if we're doing something light and silly that has an atragon in it and Manda is attacking, you, you all, don't suddenly want a scene where somebody gets shot in the head and like their brains splatter yeah. on the wall. No, absolutely, one hundred percent. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, when they fight Manda, they end up like shooting Manda with like a freeze gun and like freezing Manda in place under the water, which I feel like probably wouldn't last too long. I feel like Manda deserved like one last, Oh, we forgot about Manda and Manda like roars out of the ocean or whatever. And then like the ship has to fly it off into space or something like some cool. I would have loved to have had one last hurrah or one last horror, uh, from Manda. Uh, and we don't get that, but I guess Manda will come back and destroy monsters. So I guess Manda was fine. Yeah, because Manda will come back and destroy all monsters. So I'm sure they Look, really you, care about continuity and the, uh, these monsters. You you can't really kill these monsters. They're kind of immortal. Like how, it's going to be implied later on that some of these things really are immortal. Like they've been around for millions of years. Uh, I, I'm okay with the idea of like, okay, it looks like we destroyed the monster and it's back. We already had that with the second Godzilla. Oh, and there's another Godzilla. We're we're okay now. Yeah, they, the world needs a Godzilla. It will it will eventually right itself. Like the ending of The Wire, where even characters who died, their positions in society, in the social like framework of Baltimore, had to be filled by somebody. And other characters ended up taking those roles unexpectedly. And I feel like that's the case. Like if we lost Manda, even if Manda did die, there would be like a quasi-Manda like Manda Mark Two would just sort of pop up and say, "Hey guys, what did I miss? Oh, just call me Manda Manda One. No one's we'll pretend it never happened." <laughs> like in beer fest. Um. Anyway, uh, but Atrodon, <laughs> Manda's twin brother that we just never mentioned before. Yeah. Um. Beer fest is not a great movie, but it has one of the funniest jokes ever, and it's just when a character <laughs> dies and gets replaced by a character looks just like them. It, it, they just nail that joke. It's so damn funny. Um, but which brings me back to Atragon somehow. Uh, Atragon, I like Atragon a lot. I think it's uh, it's it's a little front loaded in terms of the pacing because like the first half hour is just it's hard to keep up with the movie. It's just throwing stuff at you that when it settles down into being a normal entertaining movie, all of a sudden it feels slow, even though it's not. <laughs> it's still well, perfectly I think rollicking, it... you know. It's rollicking, uh, and a rollicking sort of adventure movie. You, you compared it to like earlier serials. It has that kind of vibe. That kind of we're just here to to push as much entertainment at you as we possibly can in a really limited amount of time on the budget we have. Um, and there's integrity to that kind of vibe. But uh, I, I appreciate how eager it was to get to that point. That it had like so many avenues to get there. Uh, but at the same time, it didn't really feel super convoluted. I could tell who you know, who all the players were, where they were interacting. Uh, there's going to be some of these Godzilla films later on where it's like, wait a minute, is that character an alien? Like, you don't really know 
mm-hmm. really what's going on. And I feel like this one at least has a little bit of clarity. And I'm fine with that. It's pretty clear. Like, it, there are characters who turn out to be, like, evil or whatever later. And they do not do a good job of hiding it. It's basically like, hi, I'm mysterious and always wear a jacket and gloves. And uh, I'm the only person here with a beard. And I keep talking about how cold it is after you've already talked about how the people of Moo are like run really, really hot. And I'm a mysterious character who's going to follow you along and have mysterious motives the whole time. And sometimes I'll disappear for a while. And you'll be like, hey, where's that guy at the super secret installation where Spice could be? And he's like, oh, I went out for a walk. And you're like, okay. That wasn't very subtle. That was that was yeah, telegraphed yeah. pretty hard. I thought for a minute that that was a red herring, and then it's like, no, that's not the kind of movie this is. That's just oh, no, that's just that guy. That guy's a bad guy. You're supposed to catch on earlier than everybody else. Everyone else feels you know like they should have been paying closer attention, but whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like Atragon a lot. Atragon is currently available on a variety of streaming services. It's on Criterion, uh, and please check it out. It is a delight. Uh, Next time on Thank Godzilla, it's Friday. Uh, we we've we've got a uh, we've got a head to head. We got another head to head battle. We had King Kong versus Godzilla. What a treat that mm-hmm. was! And now, the 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 great and mighty Mothra will fight Godzilla in a film appropriately titled Mothra versus Godzilla. And I appreciate that Godzilla is still not the star. No, of these still things. second build. Yeah. Still, Godzilla Godzilla's, will not yeah. be the first build in any of these until... Okay, technically, Godzilla well, will not there be was, the first was... build monster until Godzilla vs. Hedorah in 1971. And that Ooh, is that's over Godzilla. 10... That's over 10 films from now. Because we've got we've got other Godzilla's movies ahead of us. Don't it's worry. Ga- Ga- yeah, Gigan versus Godzilla, Megalon versus mm-hmm. Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah, it's weird. Godzilla like versus Heater. The sixties yeah. was mostly not Godzilla versus. It was other people versus Godzilla, Mothra, King Kong. It was movies that had Godzilla in them, but not in the title, like Invasion of the Astro Monster. Son of Godzilla gets his own movie. <laughs> oh, but God. Godzilla doesn't take the headliner spot until 1971. How weird is that? <laughs> really weird. But uh, we'll we'll tackle that uh, when we get to it. But in the meantime, first up, Mothra vs. Godzilla, also available on various streaming services like Criterion. Uh, if you can afford that, Tubi is free. It's currently available there as well. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, once again, if you want to listen to these podcasts without any commercial interruption, or if you want to get episodes of uh, uh, Thank Godzilla, It's Friday one week early, you can head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You can also vote for future episodes of various podcasts, and depending on the tier you join, you can also get bonus podcasts like Only the Best. We review every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. Only the Best International. We review every film ever nominated for Best International Film. Uh, All Our Yesterdays. We review every single film in the Star... Sorry, every single episode of Star Trek in order. We do commentary tracks. We do Discord hangouts. It's a lot of fun, and thank you to all of our patrons without whom we could not do any of this. Uh, and if you want to contact us and you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, do you maybe recognize that toy I was talking about? Um, <laughs> it's very easy to do. You can email us. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We might uh, read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. And 
uh, respond to your uh, thoughts, criticisms, critiques, answer any questions you have. We also have a P.O. Box if you prefer to write us the old-fashioned way. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, and we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And until next time, rawr! Rawr. Rawr.